Okay, so Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Well, thank you very much, Luke, for reading us uh, from God's word. I think it'd be good, uh, after reading like that, to pray, wouldn't it, and to ask for God's help. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help now, that we might be among those with open ears and eyes and soft hearts to receive your word and let it accomplish your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here are five tips for better public speaking. Uh, These are from Dale Carnegie, who trains business leaders, top lawyers, and other professionals in the art of 
public communication. Are you ready? Number one, know your audience. Number two, work from an outline. Number three, tell a story. Tip number four, use inclusive language. And five, be prepared for questions. That's it. Follow these five simple rules, says Dale Carnegie, and your message is guaranteed to get through to your audience. Well, this morning we come to one of the most well-known teaching episodes in the life of Jesus. It is probably very familiar to the majority of people here. It is the famous parable of the sower, sometimes known as the parable of the soils. One reason it's so well known is because it's one of only a handful of such stories that occur in all three of the first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are no parables in John. Another reason it's so well known is that it seems to confirm a very popular image of Jesus, an image that has been captured by religious art, by stained glass windows, by uh, picture Bibles, story Bibles, and Sunday school material. And I wonder if I can just ask you, if you've got the Bible open there, just to glance over the first nine verses of our passage and see if you can see that image. The image I'm talking about, of course, is Jesus, the great communicator. There he is, look, on a little boat a few yards from the shore, so he can be heard by a great crowd of people who are straining to catch every word. It's actually a neat little practical solution, isn't it? A floating pulpit, because water, in the days before PA, uh, sound travels across water. He is a great communicator. And he knows his audience, doesn't he? Simple, rural, uneducated folk. Jesus teaches them wonderful spiritual truths by telling them memorable stories Stories about everyday farming life. And so I take it that his aim, as with all good communicators, is to connect with his audience, to make complicated ideas as simple as possible, and to illustrate them with images and ideas that they will understand. And so if we take this story as an example, I reckon Dale Carnegie would give Jesus full marks for public communication. Remember what they were? Know your audience. He certainly knows the kind of speaking he, people he's speaking to, and he adjusts his message accordingly. Number two, work from an outline. Well, he's got four clear points, hasn't he? Number three, tell a story. Yes, it's a story. Number four, use inclusive language. We're going to see that everybody in his audience is somewhere in this story. No one is left out. Number five, prepare for questions. We'll have a look down at verse 10. And what's the first thing that happens? His disciples ask him questions. Verse 36, they ask him questions. Jesus ticks every box of the good communicator. It would seem that he is making every effort to communicate as clearly as possible to his audience to get his message across to as many people as he can. That is what it would seem. But if we think that way, it turns out we've missed the entire point of this passage. On closer inspection, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus may be a good communicator. I happen to think he's the best communicator that's ever lived. But his message only gets through to a fraction of the people who hear him. Most of it fails. Most of his preaching is wasted. Most of it bounces off and comes to nothing. And not because there is a PA problem, not because his voice doesn't reach to the crowd, 
But here's the even bigger surprise. This is the thing that we're going to find hard this morning, hard to get our heads around, hard to understand, but very, very important to grasp. The message fails because Jesus wants it to fail. The failure of the message is Jesus' deliberate intention. And this passage is here to show us why. So let's look at it together. You'll see, well, I've got an outline. Uh, Three points on the uh, piece of paper you're given. The posture of Jesus, the parable of the sower, and the purpose of parables. Let's begin with the posture of Jesus in 1 to 3. In the first couple of verses, Matthew sets the scene carefully. Let's have a look at it. Verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. We need to pay careful attention to Jesus' physical posture in this scene. Look at what Matthew tells us in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Now, as we're reading the Bible, it's very easy, isn't it, just to kind of skim over those words. That's the incidental narrative detail. Let's rush on to the story itself. But we need to always remember that Matthew doesn't give us incidental details. We need to pause and ask, why has he told us that information? Well, the first puzzle is which house does Jesus leave? If you were to look back through the previous chapters, you would search in vain for any mention of Jesus entering a house, so why does Matthew tell us he's leaving one? Well, the answer comes later in the chapter. Just flip over the page and look at verse 36 with me, where we read that after a long section of public teaching, Jesus leaves the crowd and goes back inside the house, and it's inside the house that his disciples come to him for their own private Q&A. So the house in Matthew chapter 13 symbolizes something quite important. It represents the distinction between two groups of people. On the one hand, there is the public teaching of Jesus to the great crowds on the lakeshore. And on the other hand, there is the private audience within the house. Matthew has set up this chapter deliberately to demarcate outsiders and insiders, those who are listening generally to Jesus and those who come back for more. Now, this distinction is actually quite important to keep in mind. I don't know how many people you imagine on the shore there, but if we think there were 5,000 men at the feeding of the 5,000, well, commentators think it's probably likely there were around 20,000 people here listening to Jesus. So think about what a tiny fraction of that group of people actually Go into the house to hear more. And the challenge for us over the next five weeks, if I can put it this way, is to make sure that we are in the house with Jesus, if that makes sense. Because the evidence that you have understood the words of Jesus is that you want more. Whereas to think that you have understood that you can afford to miss a single word that comes from his mouth is evidence that you've not understood him at all. The second puzzle is why does Matthew tell us it happened that same day? Why does that matter? Well, clearly because Matthew wants us to connect everything that he's about to tell us in chapter 13 with everything that has happened 
just immediately prior to it. Well, what has happened at this point in Matthew's gospel? The answer is that Jesus actually isn't as popular as he might at first appear. It's a while since we've been in Matthew, so let me remind you that Matthew is organized around five blocks of public teaching material, and this is the third of those blocks, right in the middle of the gospel. In the previous two blocks, Jesus has been teaching two fundamental things, who he is and what it means to follow him. And so now, in this middle section of the five teaching blocks, the crowds already know a great deal about Jesus. They know all of the big answers to the big questions of life. Who is Jesus? How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? What do we have to do to follow him? They know that he is Christ, God's king. They know the only way to get into heaven is to join him. And they also know that such a decision will cost them everything in this world. Jesus has actually been very, very clear. But far from this clarity being met with joy and faith and acceptance, it has been met with increasing hostility. In the previous section, Jesus has sent out his 12 disciples as sheep among wolves. And the leaders of Israel have denounced him as a servant of Satan and are plotting his death. And just look, either side of our chapter, you see this widening gap between Jesus and the people. Look at the end of chapter 12, verse 46. He's talking about those who are his true family. And he says his mother and brothers, his biological family, are outside looking for him, verse 46, but on the inside. Verse 49 to 50, those who listen to him and do the will of God. And then just flip over to the last section of chapter 13, which we're not going to cover in this series, 54 to 58. This is the moment that Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Prophet without honor. And so Jesus is actually not quite the popular preacher we might imagine at this point. And this is no surprise to him. Just flip back with me to uh, 10 verse 34, where he predicted that this was going to be the case. 10:34. do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He's going to be divisive. And we're about to learn what kind of sword he means. Well, come back to Matthew 13. Look again at that scene that Matthew paints in verses 1 and 2. And I wonder if it now looks a little bit different. See, the usual idea of Jesus squashed and hemmed in by these crowds who are hanging on every word is that Jesus turns the boat into this kind of practical way of being heard. And at one level, that's right. But really what he's doing is reinforcing visually that widening gulf between him and the people. In verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus sat down. Again, a detail that's worth noting. This is the first time that Jesus has been sitting in Matthew's gospel. And he mentions it twice for emphasis. It's the word for authority. In our culture, preachers stand and the listeners sit. I quite like the idea of first century culture where the preacher gets to sit and everybody else is standing. As someone prone to long sermons, I quite like that idea. 
But this is what they did in the first century. Sitting is the position of authority. Everybody else standing on the shore. In other words, here is a great open-air synagogue. Jesus has been cast out of the synagogues of Israel. And he's created a great outdoor synagogue. But he's put a space between himself and the crowds, hasn't he? Not just so he can be heard, but that little space of water underlines the decision that is yet to be made. It is decision time. Will they join Jesus or reject him? And it's in that context that we're told in verse 3, Jesus then told them many things in parables. In other words, it's in this context of decision time for Israel that Jesus swings into a particular form of teaching. And here is the shocking, counterintuitive truth of this passage. That Jesus is slipping into this mode of teaching not to make things clear. He's already made himself abundantly clear in the first part of the book. He is not preaching to this vast crowd to get his message through, to convince them, to persuade them. He's telling the parable to divide the people, to filter them, to sift them. Here, if you can picture it, is the king sitting on the day of judgment with his sword in his hand. And those who have already rejected him in their hearts will seal that rejection by their response to his word, and the judgment will be deafness and blindness forever. But for those who are listening, for those who have already responded to his word in their hearts, the more they listen, the more they will receive. Because what follows is not just one parable, but seven parables. Seven parables we're going to explore over the next five weeks about the kingdom of heaven. And that ought to make us sit up and listen, oughtn't it? Because what it means is if you hear his voice this morning, you are truly blessed. You are among the great blessed crowd that will be in the kingdom of heaven on the last day. Well, that's what's to come. But he begins with one parable to explain them all. One ring to rule them all. One parable to explain them all. The parable of parables. The parable of of the sower, verses 3 to 9. Let's look at it again, even though it's familiar. Then he tells them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The story Jesus tells is, on the surface, simple, isn't it? Here is a farmer sowing the seed indiscriminately. The farmer falls on a number of surfaces with different results. Some lands here, some there, some in this place, some in that. But the only seed that falls in one of the four soils produces a harvest, and that's it. That's the story. Now, here's the thing about this story. It is simple. It's so simple that it barely qualifies as a story. It's just a description of farming practice. And yet it baffled those who heard it. It's not 
actually self-explanatory. Who is the farmer? Who is the seed? What is the story about? Which is why he has to come back, as we'll see next week in 18 to 23, and explain it step by step to the disciples. Well, we'll come back to that explanation next week, but for now, just notice a couple of details in the parable itself. First, notice that there are three basic components to the story. There's a fourth we'll come back to next week, but there are three basic components to the story. There is a farmer, there is a seed, and the soil. Now, who is the farmer? Well, Matthew wants us to see right away that the farmer is Jesus. Notice the parallel uh, words in verse 1 and 3. Jesus went out, verse 1, and then verse 3, the farmer went out to sow his seed. Jesus went out to preach, the farmer went out to sow his seed. Jesus is enacting the parable as he tells it. So Matthew wants us to see right away that here is not just a man preaching from a boat. Here is a farmer, literally the farmer, sowing the seed. And that ought to make us sit up and listen. We are part of the story. Second component is the seed. As Jesus will make explicit in his explanation, this is the word of God that he's been teaching, what he calls in verse 18, the message of the kingdom. It's very clear, isn't it? This is the message of the kingdom, the good news of forgiveness that enables sinners to enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the parable, just for the real farmer, the seed is constant. The seed is reliable. There is nothing wrong with the seed. All the seed is the same. It is not the seed that determines the outcome in the end. It's the third component, the soil. This is the variable factor. The soil, or the four soils, are people who hear the message. The factors that influence how you hear will come back to next week. But for now, just think about those three components. The farmer sowing the seed, the seed itself, the soil. And you know what this means. It means that the ball is in your court when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. See, the seed is being sown. The seed is good. But what about the soil? It means that how you listen to the words of Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in eternity. How you listen to the words of Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in eternity. That's why he ends with that all-important challenge in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But there's a second detail to notice about the parable, and that is the incredible wastage of the seed. I don't know if you saw Jeremy Clarkson's farm uh, a little while ago. He bought a big Lamborghini tractor and a very expensive seed drill, and he drilled his fields The seed going directly into the soil. That's what farmers do now. So that for the modern farmer, hardly any seed is wasted. It just goes straight into the soil. But what Jesus is describing here is pre-Lamborghini tractors. This is the broadcast method of sowing where the seed is scattered indiscriminately over the field. Some of it lands on that surface, some of it on that. Some eaten by birds, some choked by thorns. Much of it wasted. In fact, three quarters of the seed, three quarters of the effort comes to nothing. 
And here's the difference between Jeremy Clarkson and Jesus. There's a lot of differences, I know. But here's one. Jeremy Clarkson knows if he gets it right, and he didn't often get it right for the entertainment value, but if he gets it right, there will be very little wastage. Every seed placed exactly where he wants it with the best chance of germinating. Just as the modern communicator knows that if he or she follows those five rules, you will guarantee to get your message through to your audience. But Jesus knows there will be lots of waste. He knows his message will not get through to many of those who are listening. Why? Well, that seems to be the question the disciples are asking. Verse 10, why are you speaking to people in parables? The word parable has its root back in the Old Testament in a a kind of a riddle, uh, something that is not clear, a a kind of a a riddle you've got to work out. Why are you speaking to the people in riddles? Why not teach them clearly and openly as you have been up until now? Well, look at his answer in the final section, the purpose of parables. Now, this is where we have to think And this is the bit that's going to be uncomfortable and hard to hear. This is the bit the Sunday school syllabuses drop. Not here. This is the bit our children are focusing on. So if you don't understand what I say, go and ask uh, one of the grub groups later. There are two things Jesus teaches us about parables here. Two things. First, they expose what is inside a person's heart. Secondly, they bring about the purposes of God. And they do those two things simultaneously, without any tension or conflict between them. They do two things. They expose what is already inside a person's heart, and they bring about the purposes of God. In other words, this is a perfect example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. This is what we're going to see as we look carefully at this section. They expose what's already in a person's heart. They bring about the purposes of God. And those two things are connected. Firstly, then, they expose what's inside a person's heart. Verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? It's important to notice, again, that change of audience in verse 10. The disciples, who I think are probably still in the boat with Jesus at this point, come to Jesus and do a very important but easy-to-miss thing. They ask him a question. They ask him to explain. Why is that so significant? Well, remember, these are the disciples who've already responded positively to Jesus. When he was teaching plainly in the first two sections of the gospel, they were listening. They left their homes to follow him. They've already made up their minds about him. They've already welcomed his word into their hearts. They are literally in the boat with Jesus. So as he puts it in verse 11, although that has been their choice, actually verse 11, it's God's choice. They have been given the secret of the kingdom. That is, they know that Jesus is God's king. It's been given to them. It's been revealed to them. And when they don't understand something, they go and ask him to explain it, and he does. It is the sign of a true disciple. Some of us were looking at James chapter 1 yesterday where he says, of the word of God, be slow to talk back, be slow to angry, be quick to listen to the word of God. 
This is the mark of the true disciple. In contrast, there is that huge crowd who presumably go away a bit entertained, but none the wiser. How was your day at the lake? It was lovely. He's a great communicator, that Jesus. Knows his audience, works from an outline, uses inclusive language, ready for questions. Did you ask any questions? Nah. It was just some simple story about a farmer. But some listen and they want more. And so, verse 12, they get more. Whoever has been given more, he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Ten years later. Do you remember that day at the lake? Yeah, there was some guy preaching from the boat. Don't know what happened to him. So the parable reveals what is going on in the hearts of those who hear. But at the same time, at the same time, the parables actually bring about the purposes of God. What are those purposes of God? Two things, judgment and salvation. First judgment, verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. See, there's a play on words here, isn't there? Seeing and hearing. There's a kind of seeing and hearing that is purely external. All the people by the lake that day could both see and hear Jesus. He's a good communicator. Floating pulpit. Everyone could see him. Everyone could hear him. But there were many there that day who... All they would remember was a man standing on a boat. They did not see God's king calling them into God's kingdom. And the shock, if we're not expecting it, is that this is deliberate. Jesus is preaching in this way to hide the truth from those who have already hardened their hearts against him so that they will not understand so they will be blind for eternity. And his explanation for this is the prophecy of Isaiah 6, which he quotes at some length. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal them. See, eight centuries before, the prophet Isaiah was sent by God to preach to the nation of Israel a message of salvation. But he was told ahead of time that that message will be rejected. Why? Not because Isaiah hadn't read Dale Carnegie's blog about communication. In fact, Isaiah was such a clear communicator that the people of Israel used to tease him for speaking in baby language. He was so clear and simple to the point of being patronizing. And yet they'd closed their ears. And Isaiah's preaching, therefore, was an act of judgment. 
They would hear the offer of salvation but be blind and deaf to it because they didn't want to know God. Their hearts had already rejected him. And so for those who have already made up their minds to reject Jesus, the parables are God's judgment, confirming them in their blindness. But not only judgment. God's purpose is to save. And so what if you do listen? What if you've not closed your eyes? Well, verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not hear and to hear what you hear but did not hear. The same word that brings judgment for those who don't listen brings God's salvation for those who do. So the parables bring about the purposes of God, judgment and salvation. And this is why speaking the word of God is such a dangerous thing. It's an awesome responsibility, isn't it? Because the word is always having that dual effect. It's always achieving both salvation and judgment. The very same words are hardening some and softening others, making some blinder than they were, opening the eyes of others. As Paul says, it's the smell of death to those who are perishing, the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. The very same word. And this is why Jesus is happy to waste so much seed. Because it turns out, if you skim your eyes back over the parable, none of it is wasted. This is how he does his work. Every one of those seeds is accomplishing God's salvation or judgment according to his will. Listen to Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and the purpose for which I sent it. Well, let's conclude with two implications. Two implications, and we'll see uh, much more when we come back to it next week. Understand the world, firstly. The world can be a confusing place for the Christian to live in because it's hard for us to understand what is actually going on in terms of the kingdom of God. For example, how would you describe the spiritual state of the UK right now? Or Europe? Or the West? Or the world? What is happening in our world concerning the kingdom of God? Is it growing or is it shrinking? Is Jesus winning or Jesus losing? It'd be a good thing to talk about over coffee, wouldn't it? Certainly the usual narrative, the one the secular media wants people to believe, is that Jesus is very much losing. As society becomes more advanced, more scientific, more educated and so on, religion will decline. That's the narrative, isn't it? And as a society, we've certainly done our best to push the Bible out of view and to silence the words of Jesus. This has been going on for about 200 years. As a nation, we have been pushing the words of the Bible out of public life. 150, 200 years ago, we were a nation that was a center of world mission. We were sending people all over the world, but now, not so much. We've silenced the word of God in the public sphere, in government, 
in schools, in universities, in the workplace. You know that. But does that mean Jesus is losing? Is he on the back foot? Or could it be that this is Jesus' own deliberate judgment on a society that has rejected him? That the more we push his word out, the more we will lose it, the blinder we will be, maybe. But what about other parts of the world? I was uh, fortunate to spend some of my sabbatical in America, and I was uh, getting to know an American pastor there who had just got back from training pastors in Bolivia. And he was telling me about one Bolivian pastor he'd made friends with who works as a full-time builder because he can't, his church can't afford to pay him, but he's a pastor in his spare time. And he put a one-off event on for my friend to speak at. It's a bit like our Bible skills course. A one-evening Bible event in his house. He put one line on Facebook. 600 people came. One traveled 36 hours on the bus. Later this September, we're going to fly the whole town of Lancaster. We'll be thrilled to get two or three people from the flyers. What's going on? Well, Jesus is not losing. He's doing just what he said he would do. He's giving more to those who have and taking away those who don't. And where in the world would you think Christianity is growing the fastest right now? Where would you think? I'll tell you. Iran and Afghanistan. Perhaps the two places in the world where it is the hardest to be a Christian. Where there are fewest Christian resources. Where it is hardest to get to hear the word of God. Where you have to risk everything to come to church or your growth group. That's where the Christian mission is growing. Because Jesus is sowing his seed. hundred years ago, there were just a few thousand Christians in China. Now, there are more Christians in China than people in the UK. And most of that growth happened when the missionaries had been kicked out by Chairman Mao. How come? Because Jesus is sowing his seed. And so the parable of the sower, I think, gives us a little window into seeing the world the way Jesus sees it, to expect all of this. Apparent wastage, mixed results, slow results, but at the end of the day, exponential growth. And so one point to take away is not to be confused or discouraged when people reject the gospel, not to be baffled by huge growth we see elsewhere. This is exactly what we should expect. Because Jesus is doing his work of salvation and judgment. Every seed is accomplishing his purpose. Understand the world. But we mustn't leave it there. We must bring this home. It is fascinating to think about what Jesus is doing in other parts of the world. But is it really possible to discern these things? At the best, we can guess what is going on. It's not even possible to really discern what is happening in a church, is it? But each of us can discern right now what is happening in our hearts. See, 
most of us know that you can build muscle by exercising it. You know, this is why people go to the gym and lift weights and do those spinny things on bikes and run, all those kind of things. We can, we can build muscle, we can grow muscle by using it. But you can also lose muscle by not using it. Check with some medical friends this morning, and this is called atrophy. And you know when the round-the-world yachtsman get off, gets off his boat, he's been on the boat for a year, he's hardly walked, you know, he or she can hardly walk. Because the muscles in their legs have almost <coughs> evaporated through misuse or lack of use. Well, in 13 to 17, Jesus refers to a series of body parts which are effectively spiritual muscles. Ears, eyes, heart, mind, understanding. And just as with physical muscles, these spiritual muscles of the heart and ears and eyes and understanding, you can use and build up or you can not use and lose. And so I think it's important at the beginning of this new term that each of us takes seriously the warning and the encouragement of verse 12. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. It is possible, isn't it, in what is sometimes called a Bible-loving church, to become so accustomed to the word being freely available to you, to the things of God being so open, so comprehensible to you, that you forget what a gift this is. And you come to the word with an attitude that you've heard it all before. Some of us, I'm sure, have approached the passage like this this morning. That sermon, I know all this already. And some of you are aware that the opportunities for hearing the word of Jesus are becoming less and less precious to you. It is becoming easier and easier to miss that daily time in the Bible, if that's your habit. You find the excuses not to be at growth group or to be at church is just easier to, to pull off. It's easier to tune out of the Bible teaching because there are so many other things on your mind right now, not least the things you're doing to serve in church. And when the word does start to get through, when it threatens to shine a light into the darker places of your heart, to call out that lovely, comfortable hypocrisy you've been living with for so many years, or to touch that little idol that you know that you just can't do without. You know how to put the barriers up. Or hear the warning of the parable of the sower. Over time, your ability to hear the word will diminish. Your ears and eyes will get dull, your heart, more like that packed patch of earth so that eventually even what you do have Satan will come and pluck away and he won't give it back whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him but in the grace of God the reverse can be the case because remember who is speaking Jesus the farmer and if you once welcomed that word into your heart, then can I encourage you this morning to welcome it anew? 
even if it's painful and the light is going to expose all sorts of cobwebs, welcome the word into your heart and Jesus will grow it and he'll give you more. More of what? More of God himself and your harvest will grow. And you'll be among the happy company of those who get to see what the prophets long to see. What did the prophets long to see? The prophets long to see the end of exile. They long to see the end of death itself. They long to see resurrection after the judgment into the kingdom of Christ. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Well, let's pray. That might be so for us. Let's pray. Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that long ago you promised that a great sowing of the world will happen in our world to bring salvation. Thank you that if we open our hearts to your word, there will be joy and resurrection and new life in the kingdom of heaven. And so may each one of us be good soil that you will cause your seed to grow into righteousness and praise forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.